0: It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat.
1: All right, good morning. Peace be with you. Happy Father's Day to the dads in the house. Great to see you. Great to have you. We have uh, gifts in the back. There's a bag of coffee for all of the guys, so not just the dads, but if you are uh, male, that is for you. And then the uh, kids and Trinity Kids today are also working on a special project. And so if you're a dad, you'll likely get uh, one to four of those items <laughs> <laughs> later after the service. Today's also Trinity Sunday, which is the annual church holy day that celebrates God's triune nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and also, um, two years ago on Trinity Sunday... Uh, we held our very first Bible study in our living room uh, to begin planning for and, and cultivating the uh, the core team of this church. And so it's sort of our two-year anniversary. It depends on who you ask and what time of the year it is because September is also our anniversary. So we'll just celebrate them both and call each one our anniversary from here on. Uh, as some of you know, I, I was uh, a student at Mizzou and, and the Trinity was one of the, the subjects that I began Uh, studying that really made me fall in love with God's Word and fall in love with studying theology. Uh, Towards the end of my college experience, I began reading more of the scriptures, reading more theology, studying more of of church doctrine, and it it began to be really appealing to me. I was uh, studying to go to medical school at the time, and what was appealing to me about medical school was the ability to have the information that could, uh, could change somebody's life. And so if I, if I learned enough about medicine, then I might be able to, to use that information to, to serve and to help somebody. And so that's what made this field so appealing to me. But as I was studying more and more of theology, I found the same thing, that I could, I could understand something, that I could have information that could, uh, could serve somebody, could change somebody, could bring about healing in somebody's life. And so I set out to, to, to know the scriptures and to know theology the way a, a doctor or a nurse understands medicine. Um, but it was interesting. I, I tried to find ways for everything to fit into these neat little boxes. Uh, I wanted uh, everything to be in its place in, in terms of theology. I wanted to be able to understand everything comprehensively. Uh, and yet I kept running up into uh, these challenges. The more I studied, the more I sought total certainty and I, I was one of those guys that goes off to seminary in search of of just total and comprehensive knowledge of God. I began to realize that might not actually be possible. It might not be possible to know everything there is to know about God, everything there is to know about his word. There there may be some questions left unanswered at the end of my study. There may be some some lines that aren't as, as straight as I hoped, some boxes that are actually gonna burst at the seams if you try to put God into them. I wanted to understand God like an algebra equation. And I don't know if you remember the, the pastor that was on the radio in the 90s, he was called the Bible answer man. That was like my goals, like the next Bible answer man. And then I began to realize, I don't know if that's uh, what God has for me. The more I spent, thank you, time in the scriptures, and the more I, I was uh, just interacting with people in, in God's world, the more I began to encounter uh, mystery. Uh, began to encounter a paradox. Uh, a paradox is something where you have two truths uh, that, are, that are true, two things that are, are, are truthy, as uh, Stephen Colbert used to say, very truthy truths, but they don't logically fit together. They, they seem to, to, uh, to contradict one another. But in a paradox, you can have two truths that don't logically fit, that actually do fit together. Paradox says there, there has to be a third way. A uh, paradox says you, you need a bigger box or you need to get rid of the box. Uh, and so this morning we're, we're embracing the paradox when, when we come to talk about the Trinity. When we come to talk about what it means to enjoy God as, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How to, how to live in the world of a triune God. And before we get into the text, I want to stay on this note for a moment because I think this is such a, a good time to do so when we come into the presence of a triune God that is just totally beyond our total understanding. There are things that we can understand, things that he's revealed very clearly. We can have incredible certainty about much of what's in God's word, the things that, that matter most, that God is who he says he is, that he loves us dearly, that he sent his own son into the world to save us. We can be absolutely certain about those things. And yet at the same time, there are, there are things that are less certain, things where, where God is, has left a, a, a sort of an open, End, something that's not neatly tied up. And I don't think I'm alone in my desire for for total certainty. Uh, There was a group in the early 20th century, a, a group of people in Pennsylvania that started a Bible study, and their goal together was what they called a systematic analysis of the Bible. And so anytime that they came, to a, a paradox, something where there were two truths that didn't seem to fit together. They, they couldn't stand that, and so they would figure out a way to explain away one of the truths in order to hold the other one. So as they worked through this systematic analysis of the Bible, they rejected the three and one God. They said it doesn't make sense for God to be three and to be one, and so they got rid of the doctrine of the Trinity. They rejected the incarnation of an eternal Son of God because God the Son couldn't be fully God. He had to just be a God-like man. And so they got rid of the incarnation of the Son. They got rid of grace, unmerited grace. They said it it couldn't be that God could totally and completely save you without effort on your part because that just doesn't feel fair to us. So they got rid of grace. And so in their quest for a, a comprehensive certainty, what they had to do was get rid of the Trinity, get rid of Christ, get rid of the Holy Spirit, get rid of grace, get rid of salvation, and get rid of eternal life. Uh, This group settled on the name Jehovah's Witness, which I'm sure you're familiar with them, but they simply couldn't abide anything complex, anything that, that couldn't neatly fit into a box. And like I said, we can be certain, I believe in certainty, and there is so much that is certain in the scriptures, but but total certainty and comprehensive certainty is just not for us. That sounds an awful lot like like being omniscient, all-knowing, like being God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, "...for we know in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears." For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So Paul's saying there are unknowns on this side of eternity. There is paradox, there is mystery, and that should should draw us deeper into who God actually is. It should draw us into a life of of faith, of trusting God at his word, trusting that he is so much bigger than we could possibly imagine him to be. And so what that cultivates in us is a a humility and a faith in place of where we might just want to have an intellectual knowledge. Paul is saying that allowing for paradox in, in your spiritual life and in theology, it's actually a mark of spiritual maturity. It's a mark of godliness. It's a mark of humility. It's the same passage where he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I I acted like a child. But when I grew up, I put aside childish ways. And he's not talking about becoming more certain. He's actually talking about embracing parts of uncertainty as part of his spiritual maturity. We need a life of faith that can embrace complexity, embrace mystery, embrace the, the and, not just the either or. Deuteronomy 29, I love this little verse. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Isn't that amazing? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And maybe a good test of your your study and my study of of the Lord and the study of theology is does it produce deeper worship? Does it produce humility within us? Does it produce a, a stronger faith and trust in the Lord? Does it produce a service of others? And if it doesn't, then that, we're, we're doing it wrong. That's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. All study of God and theology should make us a humbler, gentler, kinder, more loving, more serving kind of people. And so by embracing the paradox today, that's what we're doing. There's a great writer, Jen pollock michelle and she writes, Paradox has great promise for forming humility in us all. Paradox is about a spiritual posture the posture of kneeling under God's great big sky and admitting that mystery is inherent to the nature of God. As soon as we think we've figured God out, we have ceased to worship him as he is, God, and his very being is inscrutable and unsearchable. And so we're in this series called Enjoying God that we started last week. And the goal of this series is to say there's there's more to our relationship than simply knowing about God There's more even than serving him and and honoring him and, and glorifying him. We can actually relate to God in terms of joy and happiness and satisfaction and contentment. We can actually enjoy God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're doing today, enjoying God as Trinity. And what we're doing is saying that our joy in God, if we want to cultivate increased joy in God, the way that we do that is by knowing him as he is, and then turning to him moment by moment throughout our lives. So not just turning to him on Sunday mornings, not just turning to him at community group or during our our morning quiet times, but moment by moment throughout the day, turning to him as he truly is. And I think that when we do that, as we do that, we begin to experience joy and happiness and peace in his presence. And so we're looking at enjoying the God as God Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We'll start with God the Father. If you look at the beginning of chapter 15 in in John, Jesus has gathered his disciples in the upper room. This is the night, his his final supper with the disciples, the night before his death. And so these are his final words, which mean they they carry an extra weight to them. And in verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This passage gives us a, a famous and a, and a wonderful image of what it means to be a Christian. It means to, to receive the, the love of God the Father, to have the love of the Father flowing through us the same way that a, a plant or a tree has water and nutrients flowing through it. This passage shows us how to, how to abide in God the Son, to experience joy as given by God the Spirit. This, this passage actually gives us the clearest teaching on the Holy Spirit anywhere in Scripture. Michael Reeves, a, a British theologian, says, the triune being of God is the vital oxygen of the Christian life. The Trinity is the, the air we bl- breathe as Christians. It's, it's our life, it's our blood, it's, it's what's running through our bodies at all times. Verse 8, it says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Then verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And this is why we exist. Jesus is saying this is the purpose of your being, to abide in the love of the Father, just as the Son has eternally abided in the love of the Father. And we said this last week, but it's, it's so glorious and wonderful that it bears repeating that, that God doesn't, doesn't create us because he needs to. He doesn't create us because he lacks something. God has eternally existed in relationship within his own being. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God has existed in a relationship of love within his own being, a relationship of glory and beauty and a sharing of love. That means he needs no one else. And so he doesn't create us in order to love. He creates us to, to share his love. He doesn't create us to receive more love. He creates us to share the love that he has eternally enjoying. And so he is drawing us into the very core of of what it means to be God. To be like God is to be full of love, to abide in the love that has existed from before the beginning of time. Now that's God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ in this passage. He's described as the true vine, like a prized tree in the middle of a garden. Verse 4, to back up a little bit, he says, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so we are the branches, and Christ is the true vine. Our only hope for life, for growth, for health, it's, it's remaining, remaining connected to the vine. The vine is full of the Father's love. That's why he says to abide in the love that the Father has had for him. To remain connected to Christ is to remain in an abiding relationship with the Father as well. And when we say attached, this divine love flows through us. And as verse 11 says, Christ's very own joy will be within us and our joy will be complete. And then lastly, the spiritual fruit of joy and all the spiritual fruits, we'll look at in a minute, will bloom on the branches of our lives, but only if we remain connected to Christ. Now, as we think about the Son, we think about all that He has done for us. We can't miss the the context of these words that this is less than 24 hours before His death. And every time we remember that, we should be completely astonished and blown away by that reality, that this eternal three-in-one God, perfect in glory, perfect in beauty, perfect in love within his very being, would willingly choose pain, suffering, hurt, loss, brokenness, that God the Son would, would willingly enter our world through a womb, through uh, a poor family, that he would grow up in, in humble means and he would, he would face the, the ultimate sacrifice of death for us. The fact that God the Son would willingly leave this eternal strength of love to, to live in our world, to identify with us, to be betrayed by one of us, to be killed by us, This demonstrates so much of God's nature, so much of his love for us, his grace, his mercy. Jesus, the true vine, was cut off so that we could be grafted in. There is no salvation apart from God the Son coming to the earth to identify with us, that we might identify with him so that we can be one with him. Through his death, our sins are atoned for. And through his resurrection on the third day, our lives are resurrected as well. Without God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there would be no salvation. Without God the Son coming, we would not be saved. Without God the Holy Spirit, that salvation could not be applied to us because it's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to Jesus Christ. And so we respond to the Father with this happy reverence that He has made a way for us, that He has established a world in which we can know Him and enjoy Him. We respond to this Son with incredible gratitude and joy that He has opened up this life through His very own pain and suffering. And we can praise Him and walk with Him as Lord and Savior. But up until this point, we've heard very little about the Holy Spirit. Even if you were to walk through the Gospel of John, you, you would only get bits and pieces up until this point. But it's in John 14 and then in 16, where Jesus begins to, to sort of unveil the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And it's remarkable as we look at God the Spirit in chapter 16, verse 7. He sa- Jesus says this, It is to your advantage that I go away, which has always just blown my mind. It's to your advantage that I go away, For if I do not go away, the helper or the advocate or the spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it To you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is probably the most mysterious, most misunderstood member of the Trinity, of the Godhead. This God the Spirit is often working behind the scenes and between the lines in the Scriptures and in our own lives as well. But what we see in this passage and throughout the Scriptures. Is that The Holy Spirit does several things, and without him, we would not have a salvation. We would not have eternal life. First of all, the Spirit enters our hearts. He dwells within us. Second, the Spirit guides us into all truth. This passage says the Spirit enters our hearts to create a faith within us, to open the eyes of our hearts to see Christ for who he is, to give us that desire to know God. And so if you want to know God, if you want to enjoy God, it's great to actually pray to the Holy Spirit to cultivate and to grow that joy and that faith within you. Third, the Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son. He says his purpose is to receive the words of the Father and the Son and to give them glory, give him glory by opening our eyes to receive them too. The way that the Spirit brings about the glory of God is by opening our eyes to that glory. Next, the Spirit enables our salvation and eternal life. According to Ephesians 1, the Father planned out our creation and salvation. The Son achieved our salvation by going to the cross and doing the work needed to pay for our sins. But it's the Holy Spirit that actually makes us come alive to this reality. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't understand this. We can't believe and know this, and we remain dead in our sins. It's the Spirit that enables us to come to life. The Spirit also gives us gifts for the glory of God. Some of God's attributes are, are shared with us, things that are true of God. There are attributes of His that are, are not shared with us. We, we don't get omnipotence when we become a Christian, but we do get things like love and, and mercy. We get parts of God that are true of Him, and it's, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us those good gifts. And the gifts of the Spirit include knowledge, wisdom, faith, discernment, teaching leading and serving and we see this throughout 1 Corinthians there are other gifts that i believe continue today but they're not always working at, at all times and in all ways that includes miracles healing prophecy praying in a spiritual language all these things are from the holy spirit these are gifts given from the holy spirit to the church and the point of all of these church all of these gifts for whatever they are they're for the building up of the church for the building up of God's glory. And the very last thing that, that the Holy Spirit does is what I want to close on today. The Holy Spirit cultivates the fruit, the spiritual fruit in our lives. And so when we are in Christ, when we are abiding in Christ, when the divine love of the Father is flowing through us, the Holy Spirit takes this love and creates fruit on the branches of our lives. As in, as in the result of God's presence in our lives, is an increasing conformity to God himself. And so it says this in, in Galatians 5. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep and step with the Spirit. And these are verses that as, I, as I've gotten a little bit older in my faith have become so, so important to me, so precious to me. And every time I look at this passage, I'm, I'm continually reminded of the presence of the Spirit in these things. These are not just virtues that we decide to grow in. These are definitely not the world's virtues. These are not the things that get you praised in every society. These are the result of, of the Holy Spirit's presence growing within us. And four times he's, he's mentioned, walk by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. It's impossible to love. It's impossible to grow in love. It's impossible to grow in joy. It's impossible to grow in peace, to grow in gentleness and kindness and faithfulness and self-control and goodness. It's impossible to grow in these truly Christ-like virtues apart from the Holy Spirit. And so what would it look like to to cultivate these things in our own lives? And I think the answer is actually where we started. It's enjoying God. When we enjoy God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we abide in this eternal love, when that divine love is is flowing through us and we're we're actually aware of it and we're actually savoring it, Because it's always true that we're in Christ, but Jesus goes beyond that to say abide. It means live into this relationship. Make this an active part of who you are. When we do that, the fruit will come. We participate with the Spirit in cultivating this fruit by putting ourselves in in the presence of God and by recognizing opportunities for these fruits to, to come into bloom. You can only develop patience by being in situations that demand patience. You can only be faithful by being in relationships that require faithfulness. And so when we find ourselves in these positions, we allow the Spirit to do what only the Spirit can do, which is create and cultivate these Christ-like virtues within us. If you think about it, loved people love people. You've probably heard that phrase, hurt people hurt people, which is true. Loved people love people. And that's what the spiritual fruit are. They're, They're the result of people who know how loved they are by God, who then go and love other people. They love God, and then that love overflows onto other people, even onto those who don't know the Lord. Now think about what it would look like for a church to actually be characterized by all of these things. What would it look like for a congregation to, to act in such a way that those people around it can only describe it in terms of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? And not just one local church, but the, the, the big C church, the church across the city, the church across the nations. What would it say to the world if we could only be described by the fruits of the Spirit, if that's the way that we lived among the world. And that's the reality, that when we abide in the divine love of the Father, when we remain closely connected to God the Son, and when the fruits of the Holy Spirit are in bloom in our life, we not only enjoy God and get more of his presence in our lives, we also create an incredible witness to the world around us. Let's pray.